We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Away we go, episode 146 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, September 16th, 2021, the day of game number two for the Washington football team in its 2021 regular season. Washington versus the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday night football. You know, this has happened before. Washington versus the Giants on Thursday Night Football. The 2015 season, Week 3, Washington lost at the Giants on Thursday Night Football, 32-21. The 2014 season, Week 4, Washington lost to the Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football, 45-14. What I refer to as the Larry Donnell game. Do you remember? The Larry Donnell game. Washington, in maybe the ultimate example of the team's ineptness against tight ends over the years, allowed Giants tight end Larry Donnell to have three first half touchdown catches. Let us hope that whatever happens in this installment of Washington versus the Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football does not approach that installment from 2014. That was awful. Hello and welcome to a Washington football team game day installment of the Al Galdi podcast, a pregame show unlike any other that you'll hear via podcast or radio. It is great to have you with us. Are you ready? Are you ready for Thursday night? I do believe that it's time to channel 
our inner George Allens. George Allen is the second greatest head coach in Washington history. Okay, Joe Gibbs is number one, but George Allen is number two. And George Allen, many years ago, very famously, while being filmed by NFL Films, said the following in a post-game locker room celebration. We sure we got some character. Next week, we get those goddamn Giants. Yes, George. We on Thursday night get those GD Giants. Next week, we get those goddamn Giants. Yes, the time has come for the GD Giants. Uh, Coming up next segment, I want to address two popular issues of the last few days. A, whether this game for Washington is a must-win. B, Taylor Heineke, a.k.a. Tay-Tay, a.k.a. Big Tay, as Chase Young called Heineke on Tuesday. Heineke, Big Tay coming in. Yes, Chase, thank you. Big Tay. Uh, What's going to happen? with Big Tay on Thursday night. Is Big Tay going to deliver on Thursday night? Are we going to look back upon Thursday night in regards to Heineke the way that we look back upon the wildcard loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field this past January? Or is Heineke about to get humbled big time in this game? I have a special guest for you, Nick Filato, co-host of the Big Blue Banter podcast, which is an all-22 film-based pod about the Giants. Uh, Nick will educate us on the G-Men, where they're at, and what Washington is facing in them. I have for you my rhyming keys for a Washington win over the Giants, and I have for you a prediction for the game. I will talk Nationals as the Nets bullpen blew another one on Wednesday afternoon, an 8-6 loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park. And I'll talk Orioles. Uh, They blew a game against the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Wednesday night. 4-3 was the final. Tyler Wells giving up two runs in the top of the ninth. But also in that game was maybe the best catch in the majors this season, courtesy of Cedric Mullins. We also had two more home runs for Austin Hayes, who was on fire. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Coach Russ. Haven't heard you address Young and his kryptonite. Ah, yes. Thank you, Coach Russ. Uh, Referring, of course, to Chase Young and the man who I referred to as potentially being Chase Young's kryptonite, Los Angeles Chargers rookie left tackle Rashawn Slater. What went down between Chase Young and Rashawn Slater in Washington's season opening 2016 loss to the Chargers at FedEx Field this past Sunday afternoon. Well, I did not think that Chase was bad against the Chargers. I did think that Chase wasn't good enough against the Chargers. Chase did make some plays and did have some good moments, but he didn't make enough plays and he didn't have enough good moments. But go back to the Chargers' fifth offensive drive, what was an 18-play, 65-yard drive that consumed seven minutes, 52 seconds off the clock, resulted in Tristan Vizcano's Late second quarter, 27-yard field goal for a 13-6 Chargers lead. Eighth snap of that drive, Chase Young drew a second and 10, 10-yard holding penalty on right tackle Brian Balaga. The 18th snap of the drive on a second and goal at the six, Jonathan Allen sacked Justin Herbert for a three-yard loss. But go back and watch that play. Chase Young got great pressure on the play as well. So Chase Young did do some things. It's not like Chase Young was invisible in the game, but he certainly wasn't great in the game. Nobody on Washington's defense was great in that game. Tweet from CeeLo 
on me saying on Wednesday's show, episode 145, that Joe Theismann was Washington's last true franchise quarterback. Tweets, CeeLo, to your point about franchise QBs, would Kirk not be considered a franchise QB? He started three straight years and tagged twice and put up a few franchise passing numbers. Thoughts? Enjoying the pod. Uh, Thank you, CeeLo. Well, it all depends on how you define a franchise quarterback. Personally, I define a franchise quarterback as a quarterback who is a good starting quarterback for your team for at least five years, okay? Now, that's an arbitrary definition, but that's just my personal definition. Kirk was only Washington's starting quarterback for three years, 2015 through 2017. Now, I think that Kirk very much was on his way to being a true franchise quarterback for Washington. I think the single biggest player personnel mistake by Washington over the last decade was the butchering of the Kirk Cousins situation. But by my personal subjective definition of a franchise quarterback, Kirk was not an actual franchise quarterback for Washington. He could have been, but he wasn't. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. A whole lot of those with Washington over the years. Well, if you've been wronged, don't let that be a coulda, woulda, shoulda, a law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged is Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Nace are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through. Big Washington football team fans Paulson and Nace has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Barry Nace and Chris Nace are both past presidents of the D.C. trial lawyers. Look, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people and smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's actually very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, If you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-851-9899. That's 202-851-9899. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure that you say, hey, I heard about you guys on the Al Galdi podcast. Here's what I got going on. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-851-9899. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. All right, the 0-1 Washington football team faces the 0-1 New York Giants at FedEx Field Thursday night at 8.20. Coming up next segment, an in-depth look at the Giants with Nick Filato, co-host of the Big Blue Banter podcast, which is an all-22 film-based pod about the Giants. And then after Nick, my rhyming keys for a Washington win over the Giants and my prediction for the game. The final injury report for the game came out on Wednesday. Washington does not have a single active player in doubt for this game from an injury standpoint. Of course, Washington does have Ryan Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel on the reserve injured list, so you can't just say that Washington has been remarkably healthy. But no player on Washington's active roster is an injury concern going into this game. Uh, Antonio Gibson was dealing with a shoulder issue, perhaps still is dealing with a shoulder issue, but he doesn't even have an injury status 
for the game. Uh, the Giants, on the other hand, will be without two key players. Tight end Evan Ingram out due to a calf injury and left guard Shane Lemieux out due to a knee. Running back Saquon Barkley listed as questionable due to a knee. Remember, he suffered that season-ending torn ACL last September. This is a big game for Washington, but every game is a big game for Washington. Let's make something clear. This is not a must-win game for Washington. Uh, I hate the conversation seemingly every season going into week two for Washington of whether that week two game is a must win. Uh, Every year, basically, Washington loses its week one game, right? Washington has lost six of its last eight season openers. And so every year there's this conversation about whether the week two game is a must win. Uh, I joked on Monday's show, episode 143, about this game against the Giants being a code red game for Washington. That's critical. It's uh, code red for us. Yes, thank you, Jay Gruden. Code red. But I brought up code red as a joke. Uh, It is ridiculous to frame this game against the Giants as a must win or a code red or anything like that. A, this game against the Giants is game two of a 17 game season. A million things could happen over the final 15 games. B, this game against the Giants is Washington's only NFC East game until week 14. Five of Washington's six NFC East games will take place over the final five weeks of the regular season, weeks 14 through 18. The division games are what will ultimately determine Washington's season because the division, once again, does not appear to be great. And see, each of Washington's last five playoff seasons has been a season in which the team rallied from a hole earlier in the season. So the idea that falling to 0-2 would like doom Washington this season when it comes to postseason contention is absurd. 2005, Washington went from 5-6 to 10-6. 2007, Washington went from 5-7 and seven to 9-7. and seven. 2012, Washington went from 3-6 and six to 10-6. 2015, Washington went from 5-7 and seven to 9-7. and seven. 2020, Washington went from 1-5 to 7-9. and nine. All five of those seasons were playoff seasons, and all five of those seasons were 16-game regular seasons. Now we have a 17-game regular season, so 0-2 means even less now than it meant before. Now, all of that said, Yes, it would be really nice if Washington wins on Thursday night. And yes, uh, we're going to be asking all kinds of questions if Washington loses on Thursday night. This is Ron Rivera on Tuesday at his post-practice press conference on whether this game against the Giants takes on added importance because the game is Washington's only NFC East game until December. Well, partly because we're 0-1, partly because it is a division game, partly because we won't play another division game till December. So, uh, they're, they're, you know, those are the importance. I mean, you, you don't want to go down 0-2 and then have to go to Buffalo and face a very difficult Buffalo football team. What you want to be able to do is go out and play well and win a football game. You know, um, and it does a couple of things for you because it is a division game. Um, but, you know, we have to go out and play our, our abilities, uh, play to what we're capable of, and, and really play smarter than we did last week. Yeah, Washington does need to play smarter than it did in the 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field last Sunday afternoon. I'll be getting into some of that during my rhyming keys. Uh, Does Ron believe that his players understand that there's a significance to this game against the Giants? More from Ron on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I believe they do. I believe they understand that, you know, in in this world, you know, you only get so many opportunities and and you only get so many that you can you can kind of let slip after that. Everything else is important. So every one of them is important. And that's the thing. 
every game is important. The NFL regular season is so short, even with this expansion to 17 games. Every game is a big deal. Every game is a code red game to some degree. That's critical. It's uh, code red for us. Yes, Jay. Code red. So I guess by the standard that I just outlined, uh, you could say that Thursday night against the Giants is a code red game because every game is a code red game. Uh, As for Taylor Heineke, as I have said, I expect him to play well. Why? Because all he has done since Washington signed him last December is play well. So many people find every reason for why Heineke can't be good. Well, he so far as a Washington quarterback has been good. And obviously the sample size is small, but Heineke with Washington has played in three truly meaningful games, and he has looked good in all three of those games. Week 16 of last season, the 2013 loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field, Heineke relieved Dwayne Haskins in Dwayne's final game with Washington, and Heineke looked good in that game. Last postseason, the 31-23 loss to the eventual Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card round. Heineke balled out in that game, and week one of this season, the 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field, Heineke played well in that game in relief of the injured Ryan Fitzpatrick. I get a kick out of the Taylor Heineke haters, the Tay-Tay haters, the Taters, as I call them. Uh, They say, uh, well, he's not a long-term answer at quarterback. Who's saying that he's a long-term answer at quarterback? Where is that coming from? Few, if any, people are saying that. Like, stop moving the goalposts on the Taylor Heineke conversation. The initial talking point from the uh, taters was that Heineke was going to be awful in that game against the Bucks. More wrong, the taters could not have been. Now, those same people talk about how he isn't a long-term answer at quarterback. Yeah, I mean, like, way to change the standard, okay? And I'll tell you something else. To this thing of, well, Ron Rivera must not truly believe in Heineke because Ron this past offseason went hard after Matthew Stafford via trade and then pivoted and signed Ryan Fitzpatrick in free agency. Look, Ron having tried for Stafford and having signed Fitzpatrick doesn't mean that Ron doesn't believe in Heineke as a player. Ron having tried for Stafford and having signed Fitzpatrick, to me, means that Ron wasn't sure about Heineke and wanted more certainty at quarterback. And I was totally on board with that. I wanted more certainty at quarterback for Washington. How could anyone be certain about Heineke, given the lack of playing time at the NFL level, and also given his substantial injury history at the NFL level? But there's a difference between not believing in a quarterback because you think that he isn't good and will never be good, versus not being certain about a quarterback because of a small body of work and an injury history. Heineke may be awful on Thursday night. I mean, who the heck knows? But I don't think that he'll be awful. I think that he's going to play well. And then, what are the taters going to say? Time now to learn more about the team that the Washington football team will be facing at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football, the New York Giants. And very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, Nick Filato, co-host of the Big Blue Banter podcast, which is an all-22 film-based pod about the Giants. Nick, it's nice to have you on, man. How are you? 
Al, thank you for having me, man. I'm doing I'm doing okay. You know, like grinded through the All-22 last night of the New York Giants. It wasn't the most pleasant experience. Credit to former Giants coach Pat Shermer and Teddy Bridgewater for having one heck of a game plan and executing it really well against this Giants defense. Yeah, it's funny you bring up Pat Shermer. Washington this week signed his son Kyle Shermer to the practice squad. So uh, all kinds of connections going on here between Washington and the Giants. So the Giants coming off that season opening 27-13 home loss to the Denver Broncos. What was the Giants' biggest problem in that game, in your opinion? I would say the biggest problem, which was a big surprise to anybody who follows the Giants, was the Giants' defensive ability to get off the field on third down and fourth down because Denver went for it three times on fourth down and converted all three of them in some, in some just ridiculous fashion. I mean, we're talking about Teddy Bridgewater, like stiff-arming Xavier McKinney to the ground, Teddy Bridgewater evading like three or four pass rushers. It was really, really impressive from Bridgewater's standpoint, and the fact that the Denver Broncos offense was just so in sync and so in rhythm. The Giants defense, which is a good defense, I would say, I mean, personnel-wise, scheme-wise, big fan of Patrick Graham, they just couldn't figure out the passing game, the quick game of Dem- the Denver Broncos. That was probably, I would say, the most surprising issue because it just led to the Giants defense playing an extensive amount of drives, which also ended up leading to a Melvin Gordon 70-yard touchdown run later in the in the game which is a total breakdown of anything that we saw from this team in 2020 and then uh i mean from another disappointing thing i guess you could say is the offense is still a very similar offense to what we saw from 2020 in 2020 from a scheme type of standpoint i mean jason garrett is still the offensive coordinator so you're still getting very vanilla type of play calling very unimaginative route concepts a lot of stick flat a lot of slant flat a lot of spacing concepts and not a lot of routes that kind of maximize yards after the catch built on other routes coming from the opposite side of the field and the one time that did happen it ended up being a long touchdown pass to Sterling Shepard on a deep over route with another deep over route in a vertical to clear out from the other side of the field and that was a really good play call against man coverage but other than that man I mean it was it was a lot of the uh, similar frustrations that Giant fans saw from 2020 in terms of Jason Garrett, his play calling, and then Daniel Jones making boneheaded mistakes and fumbling the football. Yeah, so with Daniel Jones, he, in that loss to the Broncos, had another loss fumble. He, uh, in his career, over 28 regular season games, has 30 fumbles, including 18 lost fumbles. He has done well over four career games against Washington, but what's your assessment of where we're at with Daniel Jones? Daniel Jones, to me, he is a roller coaster because he does show signs of being a, I would say, a solid quarterback in the National Football League, a, start, a solid starting quarterback. I mean, there are times where he has shown really impressive arm strength, really impressive touch, deep ball accuracy. We saw that on the deep 40 two-yard gain to Darius Slayton from the far hash all the way to the sideline. That was a really, really good throw from Daniel Jones. I feel like in 2020, he did a better job using his eyes to control and manipulate safeties. I feel like he took a step in the right direction there. But from a pre- to post-snap standpoint, generally speaking, he still lacks... I think the ability to get through his progressions and he'll get locked on to his primary read a little bit too long and try to force footballs into just ugly spots. I mean, Denver could have had maybe two, possibly three interceptions in this game. The one that really sticks out was a wheel route in the red zone to Saquon Barkley, where Daniel Jones just locked on to Saquon Barkley and fired the football and it was dropped by a... I don't remember the defender who dropped it. And then Justin Simmons also almost came up with an interception in the red zone later in that game. He ended up dropping it as well. So Daniel Jones is just mistake prone. And I feel like he doesn't offer enough 
upside to, to kind of get away with those mistakes. Now, he's still a young quarterback. He's in a system that is not going to maximize his skill set with Jason Garrett. That's definitely for sure. And the offensive line is still, I would say, marginal at best, to be honest. And they didn't even have that terrible of a game against Denver. I mean, Von Miller had his two sacks. They didn't have their face Bradley Chubb, and that felt Andrew Thomas did a better job in this game than he did in that preseason three loss to the New England Patriots. But overall, now you added these other skill position players, and it's it's either you know win or or don't pick up his fifth year option next year. You're going to be in a real tough spot with Daniel Jones by next May when you have to make that decision. I'm not fully out on Daniel Jones. I feel like he showed a lot of good things in this game, but those ugly mistakes that he makes out, they still crop up, and it's starting to get really frustrating. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, do you think that this is a make-or-break season for Daniel Jones as the Giants' starting quarterback? We know that he's under contract for at least one more season, but do you think it could be that this is his final season as the Giants' starting quarterback, or is he back as the Giants' QB1 for next season, regardless of what happens this season? I think it's interesting. If if everything falls off the rails, then the Giants are probably going to move on from Dave Gettleman, and then there's no one in that building other than unless they promote Kevin Abrams to be the general manager, which could happen, that is really tied to Daniel Jones. And the fact that the Giants have two first-round picks in the next draft makes me think they would look to invest in the quarterback position if Daniel Jones doesn't take a significant step forward, which, I mean, it's possible. Like I said, like there are things that Daniel Jones does that that, that gives you intrigue, that leads you on a little bit, but you have to mitigate the mistakes because you turn the football over in the NFL, you lose. So I think if the Giants you know, go out and win six games, they're going to be looking to probably replace Jones, but they still have him under contract for another year. It's just that one pick up his fifth year for the subsequent year after that. We're talking Washington versus the Giants with Nick Filato, co-host of the Big Blue Banter podcast, which is a terrific all-22 film-based pod about the Giants. So you've mentioned a few times Jason Garrett, the Giants offensive coordinator, of course, the former Dallas Cowboys head coach. I take it that you're not a fan of old Jason G as the uh, Giants OC. Ah, big JG. I, I love the uh, rhyming that you pulled off there, Al. That was pretty cool. But uh, um, I'm not the biggest fan of, of Jason Garrett, and I feel like there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, he's a you know he's a smart guy. Obviously, he knows football. Like, I'm not sitting here trying to trash his football um, knowledge or anything like that. I mean, he's you know Princeton grad. This guy is very very intelligent, but he's really stuck in his philosophy. And his philosophy is to basically call three plays to pick up 10 yards. There's not as many shot plays outside of some first and 10 play action looks. And there's just way too many stagnant route calls in his playbook where players will run five to six yards and then break back towards the quarterback, just simple curl type of routes. And I feel like defensive coordinators are tracking on what Jason Garrett wants to do basically all the time, which does not help the fact that the Giants can't move the football. And I think you guys are probably going to get a good glimpse of that against the Washington football team on Thursday. Last year, I actually gave Jason Garrett some credit against the Washington football team because the offensive line was a mess. They had two rookies who were starting, and some of that pair was kind of um, switching in and out with Cameron Fleming at that time. So in order to mitigate the pass rush of Montez Sweat and Chase Young, he called a very conservative, run-oriented uh, uh, game. And I felt like that was a good adjustment. The Giants ended up winning two games. 
because of that because he did mitigate mistakes. But at the same time, it's not because the offense was explosive or creating yards or creating opportunities. It was because the defense in the second game had five turnovers. And then in the first game, Ron Rivera didn't convert the two-point conversion and Tay Crowder had a fumble return for a touchdown. So it's not on the back of the offense. This team is always carried by the defense. And the Giants, you know, they didn't even debate replacing Jason Garrett as an offensive coordinator despite being 31st in yards and points last season. The only reason he wasn't 32nd was because Adam Gase was a head coach. So a lot of Giant fans are frustrated with Jason Garrett, and I think it's very understandable as to why. Two of the Giants' major new offensive weapons, Kenny Galladay and Kyle Rudolph, how did they look against the Broncos? Kyle Rudolph, I mean, he's coming off that foot injury, and he didn't look great, to be honest. He he really didn't. He looks big out there. (laughs) I'll give him that, but he's forced to probably play a little bit too many snaps than he's probably ready for because Evan Ingram's out with his injury, and there's really nobody behind Caden Smith, who's the third tight end, who I feel like a lot of Giant fans really like, and the film checks out, too, with Caden Smith. He's He's a good player, a good role player. Kyle Rudolph definitely needs a bounce back game, though, because he looked slow, which is something you kind of expect from Kyle Rudolph, but there seems to be miscommunications between him and Daniel Jones in the red zone, and uh, Kyle Rudolph definitely needs to step it up. Kenny Galladay, though, Kenny Galladay flashed, and he, he said before the game that he was going to knock, that the offense needed to knock off the rust because they had a lot of players coming back from injury. Obviously, Saquon, Kyle Rudolph, Kenny Galladay, Kadarius Tony. Kenny Galladay, I mean, a lot of it was in garbage time, but there were some catches that he made on some deep, big routes that were just eye opening. One should have been an interception, and Kenny Galladay wrestled it away from the cornerback. And another one, it was like a, maybe a 10, 15 yard dig. He jumped, extended his hands, and plucked this ball out of the air. A really hard pass from Daniel Jones and then just secured it to the ground. It was very, very impressive. I think a lot of Giant fans, and, and myself included, were excited about Kenny Galladay. We're, we're kind of hoping that he's fully over that hamstring injury that can kind of linger a little bit. But I think his contested catch ability is something that can really help out this Jason Garrett offense that struggles to move the football. I'm, uh, I'm not too worried about Kenny Galladay, and I'm actually looking forward to that matchup of Kenny G against William Jackson, your guy's new quarterback. Yeah, that should be a lot of fun for sure. Uh, Saquon Barkley, he and the loss to the Broncos, 10 carries, just 26 yards in his first regular season games and suffering the torn ACL last September. Had Saquon looked to you? Saquon didn't look all that great, and I don't think it was uh, necessarily because of the... I mean, yes, he's knocking off the rust and everything like that from the injury, but I don't think it's because he... Um, like physically doesn't have it anymore. I think physically you saw some jump cuts that he made. You're like, oh, wow, that's that's a Saquon jump cut at that right there. But I think mentally he's still trying to kind of, you know, get used to getting hit. And I also think he struggled to kind of find holes and, and, and really press defensive leverage and, and kind of read his blocks, which is something that Dan and I on our podcast have kind of been criticizing Saquon Barkley for since the Giants drafted him back in 2018. And these inside zone and duo type of runs, he he – he doesn't always see the hole quick enough, and he's not all that decisive. He gets a little bit too bouncy on his feet and and doesn't necessarily see the hole and then explode through it, which is something I feel like he would be excellent at if he was just a bit more decisive. So I saw some hesitancy from Saquon Barkley, but I expect him to kind of um, – I expect that to, to, to dissipate as he – gets a little bit more involved and ingratiated into the offense. I think he would have played more snaps, too, if the game wasn't you know, a blowout where the Giants ran a bunch of plays in, late in the fourth quarter when it was garbage time, and they're not going to put Saquon Barkley in a situation where he's going to take unnecessary hits. So I think he, if this game is competitive, we're going to see a solid uh, dosage of Saquon Barkley, but you'll still see some Devontae Booker as well. Washington's pass rush was disappointing in the loss to the Chargers. The Giants drafted 
Offensive tackle Andrew Thomas with the fourth overall pick in the 2020 NFL Draft. How is Thomas doing? So Andrew Thomas, a lot of us were hopeful about him coming into this season because he finished the season strong last year. Uh, other than the Baltimore and the Arizona Cardinal games, but the Giants' entire offensive protection was out-schemed in that game. So then we go into week three preseason against the New England Patriots, and he was beat by Josh Uche several times, and he only played about you know a half, and then he sat down, and there wasn't many good reps, and there was a lot of lowlights. So Andrew Thomas, a lot of people speculated that he was regressing, and he wasn't um, he wasn't going to be the player that a lot of us hoped. But I gotta say, against Malik Reed, who wasn't Von Miller, he saw a lot of Malik Reed because Bradley Chubb didn't play. Andrew Thomas looked really, really um, solid, I would say, in in week one against the Denver Broncos. He probably had two reps on film where you're like, Ugh, what was he doing from a technique standpoint? His feet and his hands weren't in sync and his balance got all screwed up. But other than that, I mean, I felt like he had a pretty solid game. But I don't expect the Giants to be doing a lot of five-step drops, you know, long progression type of plays, long developing plays, because Montez Sweat and Chase Young are incredibly scary. And I don't want either of those guys to have the opportunity to tee off against Andrew Thomas and then more specifically Nate Solder on the other side who struggled against Von Miller. It's Von Miller, but still Nate Solder, the Giants were not relying on this guy to play at all, Al. And Matt Parrott did not develop like they expected, so they had to force Nate Solder to start. Maybe the Giants get paired another chance, but he's somebody who's still really coming on slowly. It's the offensive line in general, Al, if I'm going to be honest. It's concerning because there's not one proven starter in that unit right now. You, you don't even know what's going on with the left guard. Shane Lemieux playing for a partially torn patellar tendon. He was benched for Ben Bredesen in the game where the Giants just received from the Baltimore Ravens. And your probably most proven starter at this point is Nick Gates, who's a center that played tackle and was undrafted in 2018 out of Nebraska. And that's your most proven starter. And he's actually pretty darn good, to be honest. But... That just speaks to the lack of depth along this offensive line and the lack of reliable and consistent players that can start in front of Daniel Jones. So with the defense, uh, it's interesting to me. The Giants have talent in guys like Leonard Williams, Blake Martinez, James Bradbury, Adoree Jackson. But like you said, there were issues against the Broncos. Is the Giants defense as good as the talent suggests or is the Giants defense not as good as the talent would indicate the defense should be? I think it's a good unit. I think defensive coordinator Patrick Graham is an excellent coordinator and he was trying a lot of different things against Pat Shermer and against and against Teddy Bridgewater, but you know sometimes you got to tip your cap to your opponent. Those guys had an excellent game plan, they executed very very well, but the Giants were getting pressure. I mean Dexter Lawrence was just bullying the interior offensive line of the Denver Broncos. Leonard Williams, I think, had six pressures in this game. And I want to say right now, the Giants rank fourth, according to Pro Football Focus, in pressures at this moment, which is kind of nuts when you think about it, because the teams that are ranked ahead of them are all teams that won, Carolina, the 49ers, and Pittsburgh. And, I mean, Washington had like seven pressures. I think the Giants had 28. So the Giants were getting pressure. They just weren't getting home. They weren't finishing the play. And on the back end, it was disappointing to see the um, the lack of spatial awareness in zone coverage, whether that be zone match or just, you know, spot drop type of zone, which the Giants kind of run a, a decent amount of uh, zone match. They run a lot. And they tried man coverage since they have a Dory Jackson. Now they tried man coverage and it got picked apart a little bit. And I feel like a big reason for that was Jabril Peppers, who was really, really bad against Noah Fant and Albert O. I mean, he got picked on a lot in the middle of the field. 
I think that's something that definitely needs to be cleaned up. I'm not overly scared, though, uh, of this defense repeating that. I think they're going to come out very, very hungry. It's a very prideful group with really, really good leaders. Blake Martinez, uh, James Bradbury, Logan Ryan, Leonard Williams, those guys. I think they're going to really button it up and come out strong against the Washington football team. So I'm not overly worried about the defense as of right now. Final topic, and I appreciate your time. So taking a step back, the Giants have had six double-digit loss seasons over the last 70 years. The last three double-digit loss seasons have happened with Dave Gettleman as general manager. He has been the Giants GM since December 2017. How much longer does Gettleman get to turn things around? And along those lines, what are your impressions of the Giants' second-year head coach, Joe Judge? Yeah, so I don't think Dave is going to uh, make it to next season. I mean, the Giants would never fire him mid-season unless, like, the only time they're going to do that is when it's a Jerry Reese, Ben McAdoo type of meltdown, and you start Geno Smith in Oakland against the Raiders over Eli Manning and break that streak. <laughs> <laughs> John Mara, he's not somebody to really catch the headlines like that, so I think if everything falls off, I think Gettleman would retire. He wouldn't get fired. I think he would retire, go to Cape Cod, like he's always said, Cape Cod, and then have probably Kevin Abrams be promoted, or they would look outside the organization, which I think I'm more for, because I think you need some fresh ideas in that building. I think that's what would happen if this season just goes totally awry, especially after Dave Gettleman spent so much money this offseason to improve this roster. As for Joe Judge, I like Joe Judge. I like Coach Judge. I don't like how he threw a red challenge flag uh, in this game on a touchdown call. I know he's taken a lot of national crap for that. He claims that he, he knew the rule, and I, I expect that he did. I mean, he's a very intelligent man, but he was trying to get the attention of the of the official to get an explanation as to how Albert O scored that touchdown. I, I think everybody on this team buys into what Joe Judge is selling. I think he always says the right things in front of the microphone. I think he actually cares about his players. He shows the players that he cares about them, but he's also very tough on them when he has to be. So I... I I really do kind of like Coach Judge. I know nationally he kind of gets picked on a lot because of his hard-nosed New England type of approach, but I think there's much more to that that he probably gets credit for. So I'm a fan of his, but I, you know, at the end of the day, Al, you got to win football games. You do. I don't think if the Giants are terrible this year, they're going to fire Coach Judge unless it goes really, really bad. I really don't think that's going to happen, which kind of puts you in a position where you bring in the general manager and you have the head coach, and it's that awkward like 2015 New York Jets uh or what was that, 2013 New York Jets, John Itzig, Rex Ryan type of situation, if you remember that from back in the day. I think that could be something that could be uh, annoying down the uh, down the line, but I, I don't really want Joe Judge to be fired because I do think he can be a successful coach in this league. And I buy into what he says, and it seems like the players do. Now, if the players don't, we can have another conversation. Good stuff. Great insight. Nick Falato, co-host of the Big Blue Banter podcast, a must-listen if you want to learn more about the Washington football team's opponent on Thursday night, the New York Giants. Nick, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. All the best to you. Al, thank you, man. Take care of yourself. All right. My rhyming keys for a Washington football team victory over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday night football, and my prediction for the game. We'll get to all of that after this. Well, Washington football team season has finally arrived, and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Washington football team tickets. That's because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees 
that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. We're all excited to watch the WFT this season. Whether you're looking to watch Young, Sweat, and the defense battle Mahomes and the Chiefs or Brady and the Bucks at home or wanting to travel with McLaurin and the guys to watch them play at Rodgers and the Packer, at Carr and the Raiders, or you want to hit up the division games, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets, no more of those ridiculous service fees. So here's what you do. Visit TickPick.com slash Galdi right now and use the promo code Galdi to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K.com slash Galdi and use the promo code Galdi. TickPick.com slash Galdi and make sure that you use the promo code Galdi. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Street food We're in Japan. Why are you watching videos? Just using my phone to find our next meal. What's that? Let's find out. With my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra, I can circle it with the S Pen and search right in the app. It looks like it's called Takoyaki. Tofu! Actually, it's fried octopus. <laughs> I knew that. Circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Get yours now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. All right, my friends, it is time to rhyme. It is time for rhyming keys as I will rhyme the path to victory for the Washington football team in its game against the New York Giants at FedEx Field Thursday night at 8.20. These rhymes are not meant to be good. They are simply meant to make a few points. And in fact, the worse the rhyme, the better the time. And so here we go. Rhyming keys for Washington versus the Giants. How does Washington win this game? Let us rhyme the ways. Rhyming key number one. This is for Washington's defense. Remember, 14 for 18, come out mean and make Daniel Jones's pockets anything but clean. 
There is a lot of onus on the Washington football team's defense to be really good against the Giants on Thursday night. A, the Giants are not a great offensive team. B, Washington's defense is coming off getting carved up on third downs in ways that were unholy and impure in the 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field this past Sunday afternoon. As you perhaps have heard, Washington allowed the Chargers to go a mind-boggling 14 for 18 on third downs, if you don't include the Justin Herbert kneel down on a third and goal at the nine on the final snap of the game. But you know what else was a problem in that game? The Chargers' first offensive drive. What was the opening drive of the game? A 10-play, 75-yard drive resulted in running back Austin Eckler's first quarter, first and goal, three-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. The Chargers marched right down the field. Washington offered like no resistance. This was the opposite of Washington's defense hitting the ground running. This was the Washington defense uh, lightly tapping the ground standing and flat-footed. Washington's defense needs to be much better and needs to be much more disciplined on third downs. None of this, you know, players being out of position stuff that Ron Rivera has talked about. Washington's defense needs to be good and good from the get-go. Don't put the team in a hole, especially with a new starting quarterback. And Washington's defense needs to harass Daniel Jones. Washington's pressure rate for the loss to the Chargers for pro football focus was just 12%, which was the lowest by any team in the NFL in week one through Sunday. That is pathetic. This defensive line is supposed to be better than that. Daniel Jones is a turnover waiting to happen. Jones in his career over 28 regular season games, 30 fumbles, including 18 lost fumbles, 22 interceptions as well. Pressure Jones, hit Jones, and get him to give it up like he has given it up so many times before. And so rhyming key number one for Washington's defense, remember, 14 for 18, come out mean and make Daniel Jones's pockets anything but clean. Rhyming key number two for Washington against the Giants. This is for the entire Washington football team. You must deflate your number of accepted penalties from eight. You know what hasn't gotten talked about nearly enough from the loss to the Chargers? Penalties. Yeah. Washington in that game had eight accepted penalties, and a number of them were killer penalties. Washington in the loss to the Chargers had three accepted penalties on defense. That first Chargers offensive drive resulted in the Austin Eckler touchdown run. Ninth snap of that drive on a third and 10 at the Washington 15. James Smith-Williams, or is it James Williams-Smith? I'm not sure. Very confident what we've seen from from James Williams-Smith. Yes, Ron, it does get confusing. James Smith-Williams, he committed a five-yard neutral zone infraction penalty. The Chargers' fourth offensive drive, 10 plays, 76 yards, resulted in Tristan Viscano's second quarter, 33-yard field goal for a 10-6 Chargers lead. Eighth snap of the drive, Chase Young committed a second and 10, five-yard neutral zone infraction penalty. The Chargers' fifth offensive drive, 18 plays, 65 yards, consumed seven minutes, 52 seconds off the clock resulted in Tristan Viscano's late second quarter 27-yard field goal for a 13-6 Chargers lead. Third snap of the drive, William Jackson the third, a third and five two-yard pass interference penalty on Keenan Allen for a Chargers first down. Washington in this loss to the Chargers had three accepted penalties on offense, including two on one drive by the $18 million guard, Brandon Sheriff. 
Brandon Scherf. Yeah, that guy. Washington's seventh offensive drive resulted in Dustin Hopkins' early fourth quarter missed 51-yard field goal attempt. Ninth snap of the drive, Brandon Sheriff committed a first and 10, 10-yard holding penalty on a Jarrett Patterson run. 13th snap of the drive of the first snap of the fourth quarter, Brandon Sheriff committed a third and five, five-yard false start penalty, which helped to make Hopkins' field goal attempt a 51-yarder. Inexcusable that Brandon Sheriff committed two penalties like that on that drive. Washington's ninth offensive drive, the one that resulted in the uh, fourth quarter punt. Uh, eighth snap of the drive, Adam Humphreys committed a second and five, 15-yard shipping penalty. And I mentioned that punt, uh, the long snapper, the cheese man, Cameron Cheeseman, he committed a 10-yard holding penalty on that fourth quarter, fourth and 12 punt by Tressway. Washington did a good job of not committing penalties in the preseason. That seemingly meant nothing for what we saw last Sunday. Gotta be more disciplined on Thursday night. And so rhyming key number two for the entire Washington football team, you must deflate your number of accepted penalties from eight. Rhyming key number three for Washington against the Giants. This is for Scott Turner. Get the ball to Terry McLaurin more instead of his targets total being just four. I get that Washington did not have the ball all that much in the loss to the Chargers. Washington ran 49 total offensive plays to the Chargers 78. But even with that, there's no excuse for Terry McLaurin getting targeted just four times the entire game, including zero times in the first half. I'm sorry. That's unacceptable. McLaurin is one of the best receivers in the NFL. His targets total needs to be in double digits every game. And ideally, his targets total in a given game is into the teens. He finished the game with four receptions for 62 yards on four targets. That's it. Just four targets the entire game. But each target resulted in a catch, including maybe the single best catch in the NFL in week one. Washington's sixth offensive drive was the opening drive of the second half, was an eight-play, 81-yard drive, resulted in the Taylor Heineke third quarter, first and 10, 11-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass to Logan Thomas. The seventh snap of the drive and the snap right before the touchdown, Taylor Heineke, third and six, 34-yard shotgun completion to Terry McLaurin, who made a spectacular catch on which he adjusted his body while falling backwards, and McLaurin made the catch despite an illegal contact penalty by corner Michael Davis. Terry McLaurin is outstanding. Get Terry touches. And I know it's not as simple as just throwing the ball to Terry. He has to be open. Throwing to him has to be the right read. But Scott Turner needs to call plays that get Terry open. And if nothing else, call like bubble screens to Terry. Get the ball in his hands and let him do his thing. You know, Terry in the 2020 regular season was number 10 in the NFL in Yak for ESPN at 490. He is more than capable of breaking tackles, but he needs the ball in his hands to break tackles. And so rhyming key number three for Scott Turner, get the ball to Terry McLaurin more instead of his targets total being just four. And rhyming key number four for Washington against the Giants this is for Taylor Heineke. Be steady like Teddy. It is true that this Giants defense has talent. Interior defensive lineman Leonard Williams, linebacker Blake Martinez, corner 
James Bradbury, who Ron Rivera had with the Carolina Panthers. Corner, Adoree Jackson, who was a big free agent signing by the Giants this past offseason. But here's what's also true. Denver quarterback Teddy Bridgewater picked apart the Giants in the Broncos' 27-13 win at the Giants in week one. Bridgewater in that game, 28-36 for 264 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. He took two sacks. He had three carries for 19 yards. In fact, Teddy Bridgewater, number one in the NFL through week one in ESPN's total QBR at 95.7. Yes, the number one quarterback stat out there had what Teddy Bridgewater did against the Giants as the best performance by any quarterback in week one. Bridgewater largely had his way with the Giants. The Broncos finished that game 7 of 15 on third downs. Now, does that mean that the Giants defense is awful? Not necessarily, but it does mean that this Giants defense can be had. Just like what Justin Herbert did to the Washington football team on third downs last Sunday means that this Washington defense can be had. Taylor Heineke played well in that loss to the Chargers. 11 of 15 for 122 yards. That's 8.13 yards per pass attempt. That's good. He had a touchdown pass versus no interceptions. He took no sacks. He had three carries for 17 yards. Heineke is more than capable of doing well against this Giants defense. He needs to not let the moment get to him. He needs to not let this opportunity as Washington's QB1 overwhelm him. He needs to trust his reads. He knows Scott Turner's offense exceptionally well. You know that Heineke is going to use his legs. You know that Heineke is going to try to make plays, but he needs to try to not do too much. He needs to not force things. Starting is different than relieving, but there's no reason that Taylor Heineke, aka Big Tay, as Chase Young called Heineke on Tuesday, can't have a game along the lines of what Bridgewater had against this Giants defense in week one. If Teddy Bridgewater can do it, Taylor Heineke can do it. And so rhyming key number four for Taylor Heineke, be steady like Teddy. All right, it is prediction time. The line for this game for Caesars Sportsbook is Washington minus three and a half. So as frustrating as the loss to the Chargers was, it may well be that the Chargers are a really good team. You know, that was not an easy matchup. And if the Chargers end up going, say, 13 and 4, 12 and 5, I don't think most people will be shocked by that. You know, the Chargers may have something really special in Justin Herbert. The Chargers have some really good pass catchers led by receiver Keenan Allen. It's not an easy team to beat. The Giants, barring the unforeseen, are not a very good team. Now, maybe our team isn't a very good team. Time will tell. But I'm not going to let one game sway me from thinking that our team is at least a pretty good team. Taylor Heineke needs to play well. I think that he will. Washington wins 21-17. Well, the Nationals in their very bad post-All-Star break portion of the season have faced four really bad teams, as in four of the worst teams in the majors. The Orioles, the Chicago Cubs, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Miami Marlins. The Nats in games against those teams since the All-Star break now are just seven 
and 11. <laughs> and that just about sums up the Nats 2021 season. Uh, Nats lost to the Marlins 8-6 at Nationals Park on Wednesday afternoon to lose two or three in the series. We had an announced crowd of 16,309 and I emphasize the word announced because it looked like there were about 15 people in the ballpark, and it certainly sounded like there were about 15 people in the ballpark. Uh, Nats now 60 and 86 on the season, 26 games below 500. The Nats have by far the worst run differential in the National League East at minus 79, and the Nats are last in the NL East, two full games behind the Marlins. Now, look, the truth is that the Nats are better off finishing last in the NL East than, say, fourth in the NL East. I mean, who cares if the Nats finish fourth as opposed to fifth in the NL East? Uh, The Nats, if they finish last in the NL East, will be better positioned in the 2022 MLB draft, even though we all get it. Draft position doesn't matter nearly as much in baseball uh, as draft positioning matters in other sports. But it is something else. The extent to which the Nats have gotten humbled by really bad teams in this post-All-Star break portion of the season. And let's be truthful, right? The Nats themselves are a really bad team this season. I think there are things to like. There are things to be intrigued by. There are things to be excited about. But bottom line, this is not a good baseball team. And we're seeing that here as this season progresses. And certainly no unit on the Nats got humbled more on Wednesday afternoon than the bullpen. In fact, you could make the case that no unit on the Nats has been worse this season than the bullpen. The Marlins scored all eight of their runs from the sixth through the ninth innings, five Nats relievers in this game combined to allow eight runs in four innings. Alberto Baldonado got us going. He gave up two runs in the top of the six on a one-out four-pitch walk of Brian De La Cruz, followed by a one-out game-tying two-run opposite field homer by Jesus Sanchez to left field on a one-two pitch to tie the game at two, the home run going a projected 401 feet per stat cast. Sam Clay in the Marlins one-run seventh was charged with a run in a third of an inning as he faced three batters but got just one out. He gave up a leadoff single to the ex-Nat Sandy Leone despite him having been down to the count of 1.12 and Clay gave up a one-out double to Jazz Chisholm. Mason Thompson allowed an inherited runner to score in that Marlins one-run seventh. Now, I didn't think that Mason really was that bad and he came into the game in a tough spot. Came into the game, runners on second and third, one out and the Nats nursing a 3-2 lead. Gave up a game-tying RBI infield single to the first battery face, Miguel Rojas, on a ball that deflected off Thompson. So, I mean, that wasn't like some, you know, laser into center field or anything like that. Uh, and Thompson did then induce an inning-ending 3-6-3 double play off the bat of Lewin Diaz, thanks to some terrific defensive work by Alcides Escobar. More on that in just a bit. Wander Suero in a Marlins one-run eighth faced four batters, but got just two outs. Uh, Suero gave up a home run on the first pitch that he threw, a first pitch leadoff homer by Brian De La Cruz, to cut the Nats' lead to 5-4. Kyle Finnegan relieved Suero in that Marlins one-run eighth inning, struck out the ex-Nats Sandy Leone for the final out in that Marlins one-run eighth inning. You said, all right, this is going to be another one of these three-plus-out saves for Kyle Finnegan. Uh, we've seen a decent amount of them so far this season. Finnegan certainly has not been perfect, but he's been pretty good. He's been the best of the Nationals relievers, certainly since the late July sell-off. You say, all right, you know, we're off and running. Kyle Finnegan does a good job putting out the fire uh, in that eighth inning. Then came the ninth inning, in which Kyle Finnegan was a complete and utter mess. Kyle Finnegan ends up pitching a four-run Marlins ninth inning, all four runs off Finnegan. And it was really remarkable because Finnegan looked like he had it to end that 
top of the eighth inning. He looked like he was a pitcher who had anything but it in that top of the ninth inning. You know, we talk about relievers, right? Like some games they're on, some games they're off. In this outing, Finnegan went from being on to being off. Finnegan in that four-run Marlins ninth issued a leadoff five-pitch walk of Isan Diaz. Finnegan then gave up a first-pitch infield single to Jazz Chisholm on a swinging bunt. Finnegan issued a wild pitch. Finnegan gave up an RBI single to Miguel Rojas to right field on a half swing on a one-two pitch. Finnegan gave up a one-out grounder by Brian De La Cruz for a force out uh, with a run scoring on that play. Finnegan gave up a two-out first pitch, two-run opposite field homer to Jesus Sanchez to left field for an 8-6 Marlins lead. The home run going up projected 401 feet per stat cast. And then Finnegan gave up a two-out double to Lewis Brinson. Davey Martinez kept Finnegan out there. I mean, Davey was like, Kyle, you're finishing this game come uh, heck or high water. Kyle Finnegan was the fifth Nationals reliever used in this game. Davey was not going to go to a sixth Nationals reliever. And honestly, I don't blame Davey. I mean, enough is enough with having all of these relievers pitching all of these games this season. Finnegan is supposed to be your ace reliever. He's supposed to be your best reliever. And he was bad on Wednesday afternoon. There are no two ways about it. The Nationals end up giving up the eight runs over the final four innings. The Nationals end up losing this game 8-6. Kyle Finnegan now on the season is 9 for 12 on saves. His ERA now is up to 315. His whip is up to 142. You know, we've had the conversation of, well, is Kyle Finnegan your closer of the future? You know, is he a legitimate, viable bullpen piece of the future? Here's the thing. I don't know that you can label anybody in this bullpen right now as a, you know, viable bullpen piece of the future. Now, you're going to have to use some of these guys moving forward. You're not going to have like wholesale change in your bullpen come next season. And so with that as a reality, Kyle Finnegan will be back with the Nationals next season and probably will have a significant role in that Nationals bullpen uh, next season, barring, you know, the Nats just loading up on a bunch of relievers in free agency or trade this offseason. But I think what's fair to say about Kyle Finnegan is this. There is something to him. He does have talent. He can be effective. But he's not a true ace reliever. At least he hasn't pitched like one so far. Uh, I don't know that he really has the stuff of a true ace reliever. At times he looks like he does, but at times it looks like he doesn't. He's not a supremely high strikeout pitcher, which is like something you always want from your top back end of the bullpen guy. Finnegan averages a little more than a strikeout per inning, which is not bad, but for a reliever, you really want your strikeouts per nine innings to be in the double digits. Finnegan uh, is not in that territory. And just the overall performance has been inconsistent. I mean, a 142 whip for an ace reliever isn't good enough. And while he's had outings in which he's done really well, he's also had some blow-up outings. And I think this was the uh, blowiest of the blow-up outings this season for Kyle Finnegan, giving up four runs, in the top of the ninth inning to a Marlins team that's just not a very good hitting team. Now, are there some guys on the Marlins with talent? Yes. Jazz Chisholm has talent. Brian De La Cruz has talent. You know, uh, others are okay. Uh, so, and, and maybe some of these guys end up becoming really good hitters. But for now, this season, this is not a very good Marlins hitting team. And yet Kyle Finnegan got got in that top of the ninth inning on Wednesday afternoon. And, you know, it's interesting with the Nationals because I think by this point, everybody gets it. The pitching has been the biggest problem on the season, not the hitting, the pitching. But if I asked you, well, what's been the bigger issue, the Nationals starting pitching or the Nationals relief pitching? It really is six and one half dozen in the other. Okay. Like, I don't think there's really a wrong answer to that question, but it is worth noting the Nationals now have a relief 
pitching ERA on the season of 493 versus a starting pitching ERA on the season of 466. If you just go by ERA, the relief pitching has been worse than the starting pitching this season. Now, you can't just go by that because one of the big problems has been starters not lasting longer in games. That has taxed the bullpen. That's part of why that relief pitching ERA is as high as it is. But, you know, for years here, the Nationals have had a bullpen problem. And anyone who's been a Nationals fan for any length of time is aware of this. It's been like the Achilles heel of Mike Rizzo. He's had a really hard time putting together quality bullpens in off seasons. What's ironic about Mike is that he has a track record of like reshaping bullpens in season and actually, if not fixing bullpens, then patching them up enough to where they end up being halfway decent. We saw that in 2017. We saw that in 2019. Heck, one of the first things that Mike Rizzo did when he took over for Jim Bowden was rebuild the Nats bullpen in season. And the Nats ended up having like a halfway decent bullpen uh, that season. But yeah, it's been a hard thing for the Nationals to do on a year-in, year-out basis, have a good bullpen. It feels like every season, the bullpen's a problem. And for all of the Nats' problems this season, don't lose sight of this. The bullpen, again, hasn't been very good. And truth be told, the bullpen was an issue even prior to the sell-off because Brad Hand was inconsistent. And Daniel Hudson, in part because of overusage, started to fade as his time with the Nats this season went on. The shame of the Nats bullpen struggling on Wednesday afternoon was that another good start from Josh Rogers was wasted. Josh Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Maybe we have to rechristen Nationals Park Navy Yard as Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood with how well Josh Rogers is doing these days. He's now been good in each of three starts for the Nationals. Rogers in this 8-6 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Wednesday afternoon, five scoreless innings. And yes, the Marlins are not a very good hitting team, but don't tell that to the Nats bullpen, you know? So if we're going to sit here and say, well, the Marlins uh, were good enough to hit well against the Nationals relievers, well, then you have to say, give Rodgers at least some credit for tossing five scoreless innings. He had six strikeouts versus one walk, did issue two hit by pitches. He allowed, though, just one hit. That's it. Josh Rogers tossed five shutout innings and gave up just one hit over the five shutout innings. And what's so funny about the one hit is the hit was authored by the Marlins starting pitcher, Trevor Rogers, as we had uh, Rogers versus Rogers in this game on Wednesday afternoon. But a one out single by Marlins starter Trevor Rogers in the top of the third, the only hit given up by Josh Rogers in this game. And then how about this? Josh Rogers as a batter in the bottom of the second worked a two-out, six-pitch walk off of the Marlins starter, Trevor Rogers. You know that meme or that may-may, if you're Bryce Harper, that's been out there for a while of uh, Spider-Man versus Spider-Man? That's kind of what you had on Wednesday afternoon. Josh Rogers versus Trevor Rogers. Josh works a walk off Trevor uh, in the bottom of the second, and then Trevor gets a hit off Josh in the top of the third. You can't make this stuff up, and yet that's exactly what was on display uh, at Nationals Park on Wednesday afternoon. But Josh Rogers did well. He struck out the side in a perfect top of the first inning. And all things considered, given who he is, given his background, that he's doing as he has done for the Nationals, this is another guy who falls into that category of a player who really has no business being at the major league level this season and yet is doing quite well for the Nationals. Whether we're talking Paolo Espino or we're talking Sean Nolan or we're talking Alcides Escobar, or we're talking Yadiel Hernandez. You know, you could perhaps put him into that conversation. Josh Rogers now 
is a part of that conversation. Uh, Rodgers now has made three starts for the Nats. He had a 4-3 seven-inning win over the New York Mets in Nationals Park on September 4th in Game 2 of a doubleheader allowed three runs in five and two-thirds innings, but uh, the final line in that game uh, was not indicative of how well Rodgers pitched in that game. Rodgers pitched in that 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pittsburgh Pirates last Friday night, two runs in six and two-thirds innings in that game. Uh, Josh Rodgers had not pitched in a major league regular season game since 2019 when he was with the Orioles. The O's got Rodgers from the New York Yankees in July 2018 in the Zach Britton trade. Uh, Rodgers was taken by the Yankees in the 11th round of the 2015 MLB draft out of Louisville. And I was thinking about this, you know, there is a history of prominent D.C. sports figures who were products of the University of Louisville. Uh, Joe Jacoby, a product of the UofL. Wes Unseld, a product of the UofL. Purvis Ellison, a product of the UofL. Never Nervous Purvis, one of the great nicknames in D.C. sports history. Uh, Jay Gruden was a product of the UofL. So, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm being a little liberal with uh, my usage of the word prominent in prominent D.C. sports figures, but who the heck knows? Maybe Josh Rogers is joining that list. But I, I think, you know, more to the point, Josh Rogers is doing a nice job. And maybe all of this means nothing. You know, it's hard to know with any kind of certainty these surprising performers for the Nationals this season, uh, what it means. But I give Josh Rogers a lot of credit. This is his age 26 season, so he's not a 30-something along the lines of some of the other people I just listed. But he's not someone, like I said, who really is supposed to be doing this, right? I mean, he was never supposed to be a part of the Nationals rotation this year. But he's done a nice job, and I give him credit, and he looks sharp on Wednesday afternoon. As for the Nats' offense in their 8-6 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Wednesday afternoon, well, the offense was good again. Uh, This continues this run here. I mean, save for what happened in game one of this series in which uh, Sandy Alcantara nearly no-hit the Nationals. The Nats' offense has been very consistent for weeks now. And game in, game out, you can count on the Nationals to hit and to score, if not enough runs to win, then certainly enough runs to be competitive. Now, you don't always get the run production early in games. A lot of times, the run scoring comes later in games. But at the ends of these games, we always kind of find ourselves saying the same thing, which is, yeah, the Nationals' offense did a good job. And the Nationals' offense did a good job again on Wednesday afternoon. Six runs on 15 hits and five walks. Now, the nit to pick is that the Nats went just 3-16 of 16 with runners in scoring position. But, you know, the blame for this loss goes on the bullpen, not on the batters. I mean, if you want to get worked up about the lack of quote-unquote clutch hitting, you know, knock yourself out. But six runs, 15 hits, five walks, that's good enough to win. You know, the problem wasn't the hitting. The problem was the bullpen. With the offense, how about the game by Alcides Escobar on Wednesday afternoon. You know, speaking of guys who aren't supposed to be producing and yet have produced for the Nationals, Alcides on Wednesday, four for six with four singles, including an RBI single, and he had a standout defensive play. Escobar in the bottom of the first, a single on a one-two pitch on a slow roller that spun away from Marlins third baseman, Isan Diaz. That's when you know things are going your way, when you get a hit like that. And, you know, that's another one of those classic Alcides Escobar hits. He's down in the count one-two. He takes a one-two pitch. He barely makes contact, but he makes contact. He ends up getting a favorable spin, and he ends up getting on first base with a single. Escobar, bottom of the third, leadoff opposite field single to right field. Escobar in the Nats, one run six, a first pitch bunt single. What a great bunt that was by Alcides. Uh, Escobar in the Nats, two run seventh, a two-out bases loaded 
opposite field, RBI single to right field for a 5-3 Nats lead. And with that defensive play, Alcides Escobar in the Marlins' one-run seventh on that inning-ending 3-6-3 double play made a great sliding catch of an errant throw by Josh Bell for the force out at second base and then threw the ball back to Bell at first base to complete the double play. Alcides had to slide to make the catch and then while getting up from the slide and essentially like leaning on a knee makes the throw to Bell at first base to complete that 3-6-3 double play. What a smooth play by Alcides Escobar. What an athletic play by Alcides Escobar. What a heads-up play by Alcides Escobar. So great game for Alcides. Four hits, the good defensive work. Alcides Escobar now for the Nationals, over 271 Major League Plate appearances this season. Batting average of 278, on base percentage of 327, slugging percentage of 379. The numbers don't blow you away. That is true. But given where this guy was, the numbers are very surprising and are surprising in a very pleasant way. Remember, Alcides Escobar had not played in a major league game since the 2018 regular season. 2019 regular season, no Alcides at the major league level. 2020 season, no Alcides at the major league level. The Nationals get him out of desperation this past July 3rd, acquire Alcides Escobar from the Kansas City Royals for cash considerations. This season is Escobar's age 34 season. He, in that 2018 regular season, by the way, had a wins above replacement per baseball reference of minus 2.2, okay? I mean, that's like Chris Davis territory, minus 2.2 B-War. And yet Alcides is with the Nationals this year. He's been their everyday shortstop. He's become a fixture in the number two spot in Davey Martinez's batting order. And as much as someone like myself likes to say things like, hey, this guy's, you know, he's, he's not really a piece for the future. Why is he still batting second? You can't get him out of there because he keeps getting on base and he keeps making contact and he keeps producing. I give the guy all the credit in the world. He plays a good shortstop. And while I'm not sure that you say, well, Alcides Escobar is your everyday shortstop for next season, what I think you can say is Alcides Escobar being back with the Nats next season makes some sense, you know, and at the very least have him as a piece, have him have him as a middle infield option for next season, depending on whatever else you end up doing this offseason. But all praise to Alcides Escobar. Juan Soto had another good game on Wednesday, another game in which he gets on base multiple times, two for four with two singles and an RBI sack fly. Soto in the bottom of the third, a first pitch opposite field single to left field. Soto in the Nats one run fifth, a leadoff single to right field. Soto in the bottom of the sixth, a tie-breaking RBI sack fly on a 1-2 pitch for a 3-2 Nats lead. Juan Soto in the series, five for 11 with five singles and a walk. No, he did not hit for power in the series, but geez, was he on base a bunch over the final two games of the series. Juan Soto now, his major league leading on base percentage at 457. And as Juan Soto has forced his way into the conversation when it comes to the National League batting championship, he's got that batting average up to 314. Josh Bell had another good game for the Nationals. Bell three for five with a solo homer, a double, and a single. Bell in the bottom of the first, a two-out opposite field single to right field, despite having been down to the count of 1.12. Bell in the Nats one-run fifth, a ground rule double to center field on an 0-2 pitch. Now, there was some luck here. There was some good fortune here because uh, this was essentially a fly ball that was not caught by the Marlins center fielder, Lewis Brinson, due to the sun monster 
which likes to make an appearance uh, this time of year at Nationals Park during day games. So yeah, you know, a little bit of good luck for Josh Bell, but whatever. I mean, it's not like he barely hit the baseball. He made good contact with the baseball uh, and the sun aided the cause. And then Josh Bell delivered his biggest blow of the game. Bottom of the eighth, a first pitch leadoff homer that went off the facade of the second deck in right field for a 6-4 Nats lead. The home run going a projected 409 feet for StatCast. Josh Bell now, a team leading 27 home runs on the season, and he's got his OPS for the season up to 822. Remember, we remarked not that long ago about Josh Bell finally crossing the 800 OPS plateau. He's now 22 points above that at 822. It's awesome to see Josh Bell getting those overall season numbers uh, this high at this point, right? Because it's taken a while. It was quite the climb he had to make off that atrocious April, but he's made the climb. He's been a good hitter for the Nationals basically since the start of May, and he's really in a good place right now. He's confident. He's making contact. His plate selection has been supreme, and he's hitting for power. Again, team leading 27 home runs on the season. That homer felt like that was going to end up being the insurance run that made things nice and comfy uh, come the ninth inning. Uh, little did we know. Uh, Lane Thomas had another good game for the Nationals. You cannot stop the Lane train these days. Lane Thomas gets on base three times on Wednesday, two for five with a double and RBI single and an RBI walk. Thomas, bottom of the fourth, two out first pitch, RBI single to center field for a one nothing Nats lead. Thomas in the Nats, one run six, a leadoff double down the left field line. And Thomas in the Nats, two run seventh, a two out bases loaded walk for a 4-3 Nats lead. It felt like in this series, the Nationals worked about 17 bases loaded walks. Uh, I know the number isn't that high, but man, the Marlins relief pitching in this series was nothing to write home about. And a lot of walks were worked by the Nats and a good number of bases loaded walks were worked by the Nats in this series. Thomas had one of them on Wednesday afternoon. Lane Thomas now 126 major league plate appearances for the Nats. Batting average of 306 on base percentage 397. Slugging percentage of 528. At some point, we're going to call it, and Lane Thomas is going to be the everyday center fielder and number one batter for the Nationals next season. We are inching ever so closer to that moment. I mean, the moment is different for everyone, right? It's kind of a subjective thing, but it just is remarkable to me the consistency with which Lane Thomas has produced for the Nats since he got called up to the major league level. Uh, Riley Adams, another guy who the Nationals got in the late July sell-off. He was the Nats' starting catcher on Wednesday afternoon, and he got on base a few times. 0 for 3, uh, but he drew two walks, including, guess what? A bases loaded walk. Uh, Riley Adams in the bottom of the fifth, a two-out full count, bases loaded walk for a 2-0 Nats lead, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. And Adams in the Nats' two-run seventh, a two-out seven-pitch walk, despite him having been down to the count at one point. One, two. We have not been seeing much of Riley Adams lately because of Kbert Ruiz, but Riley Adams, when called upon, does continue to hit and does continue to get on base. He has now 79 major league plate appearances with the Nats. Uh, Adams has a batting average of 292, an on base percentage of 418, and a slugging percentage of 508. So Lane Thomas acquired for John Lester. Riley Adams acquired for Brad Hand. Each has been productive. And, you know, for weeks now at the major league level here for the Nationals. Speaking of productive, how about Jordy Mercer on Wednesday afternoon? Uh, Jordy Mercer was the Nats starting second baseman. And old Jordy, fresh off the Nats 10-day injured list. Uh, the Nats uh, finally reinstated Mercer from the 10-day IL on Monday. Mercer, two for four with a double, a single, 
and a walk. And he looked good batting. These weren't like cheapy. Uh, well, the double certainly wasn't cheap. The single maybe kind of was. But uh, Mercer in the Nats, one run fourth, a leadoff double to left field. Good piece of hitting there. Mercer in the Nats, one run fifth, a two-out five-pitch walk. And then Mercer, bottom of the eighth, a two-out infield single uh, on which he advanced to second out of throwing error. But, you know, Jordy Mercer, like, disappeared for months. Uh, he had been on that 10-day injured list since July 24th, retroactive to July 21st with a left calf strain. Finally gets activated on Monday. Uh, he has been used as a pinch hitter. And then he finally starts a game here for the first time in forever on Wednesday. And he has a double, a single, and a walk. So good job there by Jordy Mercer. No game for the Nats on Thursday. They have a three-game series against the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park this weekend. Game one Friday night at 7.05. Josiah Gray will be the Nats starting pitcher. That is a big outing for Josiah. He has got to put out the fire here that is this rut that he's in of three consecutive bad starts. Uh, Very anxious to see Josiah pitch, hoping like heck he pitches well on Friday night. Game two Saturday at 4.05. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game three Sunday afternoon at 1.05. Paolo Espino will be the Nats starting pitcher. There have not been many truly memorable moments for the Orioles in this, their latest losing season, but we on Wednesday night did get a memorable moment. Uh, Now, the O's did lose again, 4-3 the final, to the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. O's fell to a Major League Worst 46-99 with a Major League Worst run differential of minus 263, as yes, the O's now are one loss away from yet another 100-loss season. But... Cedric Mullins made an incredible catch. There has been no bigger bright spot on the O's this season than Cedric Mullins. He has been so good that the expectation now is that he's going to get votes for American League MVP, even though he has like no chance of winning the award. But his greatness has been undeniable. He absolutely deserves votes for American League MVP. So Mullins in the game went 0 for 4 with a strikeout, but he made one of the best catches in the majors this season, a leaping backhanded catch on which he did a 360 spin and went above the outfield wall to rob Gary Sanchez of a home run with two outs and a runner on first in the top of the second inning. There are home run robberies, and then there is a play like this one. This was spectacular. This is what you call a five-star play, what Cedric Mullins did to rob Gary Sanchez of a home run. And I tell you what was so smart about this play. Mullins knew right where the outfield wall was. And so what he did was he used his left arm while leaping to push himself up as high as he could. You know, Cedric Mullins is not a big guy. He's listed as being just 5'8", and 175 pounds. I mean, Cedric Mullins is essentially Jarrett Patterson playing center field for the Orioles. But Mullins has hops, Mullins has smarts, and he ends up making that play. What a play that was. What a season this is for Cedric Mullins. Mullins entered games on Wednesday tied for seventh among all qualified major league outfielders with nine outs above average for StatCast. Outs above average is a new age defensive metric that's uh, gained a lot of steam in recent years. Basically, it's uh, outs above average as one of the great defensive stats now, and uh, defensive run saved is another good defensive stat these days. Uh, But Mullins rates very well in outs above average on the season. Mullins also entered games on Wednesday, sixth among all position players in the majors in wins above replacement per fan graphs 
at 5.5. Again, going back to that item of Mullins likely to get votes for American League MVP. I mean, the data backs it up. Again, number six among all position players in the majors uh, was Mullins entering games on Wednesday in war for Fangraphs at 5.5. Also in the Orioles' 4-3 loss to the Yankees at Camden Yards on Wednesday night, two more homers for Austin Hayes. His tear continues. Hayes smashed two home runs, a two-out first pitch solo homer in the bottom of the six, and a two-out two-run homer on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the eighth for a 3-2 Orioles lead. That looked like that would prove to be the game-winning hit. Uh, Such was not the case. Reliever Tyler Wells gave up two runs in the top of the ninth. But Austin Hayes is on fire right now. He now has raised his slugging percentage for the season by 61 points since games began on August 25th. So he, in less than a month here, has taken his slugging percentage for the season up by 61 points from 405 to now 466. That's not easy to do this late in the season, but Hayes has done that here with the run that he's been on. He also now has 20 home runs on the season. The issue with Hayes has been the batting. He is a very good defensive corner outfielder. The idea has just been, okay, can he get that offense up to an acceptable level? Well, he has done that and then some uh, over the last few weeks and uh, awesome to see him hitting like this. The Orioles have three very legitimate building blocks in terms of position players at the major league level right now. Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, and Ryan Mountcastle. And you think about what's on the come, the number one prospect in all of baseball, catcher Adley Rutschman. You got some other pieces as well who could potentially prove to be very good position players at the major league level. You feel really good about the Orioles from a position player standpoint. The problem is the pitching. Uh, Even though the Orioles do have the number one pitching prospect in baseball and Grayson Rodriguez. But there are real questions about whether the Orioles have enough pitching depth in terms of the pitching prospects to ultimately be a good pitching team. Uh, But when it comes to the position players, the Orioles, to me, are in a very good place right now in terms of what the team figures to have over the next few years. Uh, With the pitching, John Means was the Orioles' starting pitcher on Wednesday night. He was good, but not great. Uh, Means, two runs at five and two-thirds innings, gave up just four hits, a homer, and three singles. He had four strikeouts versus two walks. The problem was that he only lasted for the five and two-thirds innings. He threw 103 pitches over the five and two-thirds innings. The Yankees, for years now, have been known to be very good at working starting pitchers out of games. Uh, Means threw 65 strikes versus 38 balls. But this is now four consecutive starts in which Means has been at least decent. He was not going well for a while. He's been better lately. He still is not back to that dominant level that he was at earlier uh, in this season. Uh, John Means over his first eight starts this year, ERA of 121, whip of 071. He threw that no-hitter back on Cinco de Mayo, a 6-0 win at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. So we have not seen that means for a while, him spending about a month and a half on the 10-day injured list, June 6th to July 20th with a left shoulder strain, certainly did not help. Uh, But means has been better lately. Good to see him do well against the Yankees team uh, that can hit. And the Yankees starting pitcher on Wednesday night was our old pal, Nestor Cortez Jr. I brought this up a few weeks ago. Uh, Nestor Cortez Jr. was one of three Rule 5 picks by the O's At the 2017 winter meetings, Dan Duquette used to love himself some Rule 5 picks. But one of the rules with a Rule 5 pick is that you have to keep the guy on your Major League active roster for the entirety of the next season. Well, Cortez was terrible in 2018 for the O's. Four and two-thirds innings, four runs on 10 hits and four walks. The O's were trying to contend that season, as funny as that now sounds. Couldn't stash him. And so the O's ended up parting 
with Nestor Cortez Jr., and he now is having a great season with the Yankees. This is the second time that the O's have faced Cortez this month. September 3rd, a 4-3, 11-inning Orioles loss at the Yankees. Cortez, one run in five and two-thirds innings with seven strikeouts. And then on a Wednesday night, this 4-3 loss for the Orioles to the Yankees at Camden Yards. Cortez, one run in six and a third innings with 11 strikeouts. Nestor Cortez Jr. now has an ERA of 260 in 79 and two-thirds innings over 19 games including 11 starts this season. That's something else. The guy who was so bad that the O's couldn't even stash him in 2018 is now doing quite well for the number one franchise in all of Major League Baseball, at least in terms of its history, uh, the New York Yankees. Game three against the Yankees at Camden Yards. Thursday afternoon at 5.05, Chris Ellis versus Jordan Montgomery. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 147, will be a Washington football team postgame show off whatever happens on Thursday night against the New York Giants at FedEx Field. Let us hope that we are discussing, analyzing, and dissecting a Washington win. Also on Friday show, Goldilocks, my college football picks for Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. No game for Navy this weekend. The midshipmen could use a break off all the drama with them over the last week, but big games for the Terrapins, Hokies, and Cavaliers. Terps are at Illinois on Friday night. Tech is at West Virginia on Saturday, and UVA is at number 21 North Carolina on Saturday night. Have a great rest of your Thursday. Enjoy Washington versus the Giants. We say hail to the Burgundy and the Gold, and I'll talk to you on Friday. We sure we got some character. Next week, we get those goddamn giants. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.